Well, good morning. How are you doing this morning? Good. It is good to see you. Welcome to Life Community. We are really glad that you are here. And if you're joining us for the first time or for the first time in a while, today we are wrapping up a short series. It's a short series because it's a short book. Uh, but today, this the book we're in, the book of Jonah, is kind of like it's written in two acts. So you have Act 1, which has two scenes um, where Jonah tries to flee. And just to catch you up really quick, if you missed it, um, Jonah, God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh, but instead he gets on a boat, and instead of walking about 500 miles to the east to Nineveh, he gets on a boat and sails, tries to sail 2,200 miles away, literally as far as he can go on the trade routes to get away from what God has called him to. And here's what we've been here's what we've been discovering, and it's a really good thing. And that's this: that that when you run from God, uh, you can actually can't outrun God. Some of you have experienced that. You you know at some point it's going to catch up to you, and and it caught up to Jonah. And in his despair, he cried out to the Lord from the belly of the beast. He cried out to the Lord. But here's the amazing thing we discovered: now God doesn't pursue you to pay you back. He pursues you to bring you back to Him. He's pursuing you to bring bring you back into His mission and into His purposes. And so that's sort of the big picture we've discovered all along. We've been saying this: if you kind of have a hard time, maybe you're just you're you're just checking out God, Church, and the Bible. You've heard of this story before, but you're kind of skeptical of it. Um, let me just say, don't let that keep you from understanding and catching the message because there's a powerful message. And today, uh, as the book wraps up, it's really going to hit home for some in the room. Don't let that stop you. Now, the reason that I and many others believe this was an actual historical event that happened, number one, um, this claims to be a miracle. So if you're trying to figure out how did that happen on a natural level, well, people have speculated and, you know, they've speculated perhaps a, a great white shark swallowed him because that's plausible scientifically. How did he stay alive? The whole point is it's a miracle. God does something outside of the norm to get in Jonah's life and bring him back to himself. In fact, we know this because Jesus talks about when the people are looking for a great sign, Jesus says, no sign is going to be given to you except for the sign of Jonah. That just as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so himself, the son of man, will be in the grave. And it's a sign to the people. So don't miss the heart of the message we're going to look at today. So today we're actually wrapping up the second act, which is two different scenes. And so we're going to have to move pretty quickly because we have two books or two uh, two books, two chapters to go through today, but they're pretty short. And so to get us where we're going, let me just ask you: Does anyone have that room in your house, or that drawer, or that closet where when guests come over? You don't let them anywhere near it. <laughs> yeah, we do too. <laughs> Where you know, you know the place, right? It's that place you're just kind of embarrassed about. You don't want anybody to see in there. It's chaos. It's a mess. That's like our whole house on Sunday afternoons. Right? We have three services. We go all weekend. We have kids. We get to the end of the weekend. It's like no one come in the house for a while. Um, so I think we all have some place like, like, like that in our house. And here's what we're going to discover today as we conclude this book of the Bible. If you didn't know the rest of this story, 
and how this story would end, you'd actually be wrong probably when you guessed. And if you're here and you're not a believer, um, this is actually kind of embarrassing for those of us that are. Because a lot of us can actually relate to this perhaps a little more than we wish we did. Uh, some of us are a little bit hypocritical. If you've ever thought, I, I, I don't want to go to church because Christians are a bunch of hypocrites. Well, there are hypocrites. <laughs> but let me tell you, this is what the gospel is about. This is what the grace of God is about. And this is what we're going to discover here today. But what we're going to discover is kind of like that room in your house where you don't really want people to pry open our hearts and see this thing within us. So to, today this message is really directed towards those of you in the room who would consider yourself a good church person. And I'm going to do my best to say that in a good Southern accent whenever I do. A good church folk. Anybody there? You're a good church folk. Come on, you can admit it. You grew up in church. No, only one of you. The rest of you are like, I'm not admitting anything. I know better. The pastor will call on me and ask me to give a testimony or something. I'm not going to do that. How many of you, you grew up in church? You've been around church for a while. Yeah, you're good church folk. And here's what I mean by that. For the best part, you, you've done your best to live a good, clean, honest life. And sure, you give in to temptation here and there, but you ask for forgiveness. You do your best to make it right. You, you, you do your best to be faithful, to stay out of trouble, you know, in school, to pay your taxes, to read your Bible, to come to church, to raise your kids right. You know, good church folk. And here's what we're going to discover, that it's possible to be a good church folk who is surrendered to God's moral will when it comes to our life. Remember last week, the whole point was surrendering, that Jonah had to get to a point of surrendering to what God had for him. To surrender for, you know, to, to living in, in the parameters that God says is wisdom and try their best to follow his word in our life, but yet not have a heart for the purposes of God in this world. In fact, it's very easy to find ourselves as we become good church folk to become judgmental folk who end up in the way we interact with those around us in the culture, actually pushing people away from Jesus instead of drawing him toward Jesus. And that's what we're going to see here in this chapter today. So if you have your Bibles, turn on over to Jonah chapter 3, and we're going to jump right on into verse 1 and move quickly through this. So if you remember, Jonah was forcefully ejected. He was um, spewed out of the fish, vomited, as the text says. Sorry, those of you that are, you know, still nibbling on that cookie. He lands on the beach, full of stomach juices, little pieces of seaweed, bones, and stinky pieces of rotting shrimp. Um, get the picture. <laughs> he lands out on, the, out on the beach, right? He goes home. He's back in Israel. He's back in his hometown. He goes back to his house. He gets cleaned up a little bit, settles down a bit, minute, and then, then here's what it says. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh. And proclaim to it the message I give to you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. So this time God says go. And instead of telling him what he's going to preach, he just says go. I'll tell you what to preach when you get there. I want you to go and preach. And Jonah in the text, it literally, um, it says he got up and he went right away. But I love this because here, here's what we see. 
How many of you like second chances? How many of you have had some second chances in your life and you are so thankful? See, God pursues him not to, to pay him back, like we said, but to win him back to the purposes God had for his life. And he gives him a second chance. This is grace. Like, hey, buddy, you ran away from God. You blew it. You were in despair to the point where you were just like, throw me overboard. I want to end it all. But I rescued you and I saved you uh, in my own creative way. But, but I rescued you. And I did that for a purpose and, and a plan because I have a purpose and a plan for your life. And this is where Jonah finds himself now. As God calls him, he gives him a second chance. And this time he obeys. And the, and the text literally has the connotation of he got up right away, packed his bags, and headed out. So Jonah walks for several weeks. It's 550 miles to go from the outskirts of where he was in Israel. We got a map here over to the great city of Nineveh. This is in the Assyrian Empire, and he's going to walk all the way over to Nineveh. Nineveh was uh, was built up by a guy named Tiglath-Pilsir II. He he made Nineveh into a great, huge city. This was the most powerful, prestigious city in the Assyrian Empire. A short while later, it would become the capital. And actually, historically, we didn't really know exactly where Nineveh was until it was excavated in 1845 to 1850 by a British archaeologist. And what they discovered were palaces and a library and huge city walls. In fact, here's modern day where Nineveh is. You can go, well, you probably can't right now, but this is Mosul, Iraq. Some of you have been there. Some of you have family that have been stationed there. And this is the, the ancient walls. They've excavated out the ancient walls and a lot of the ruins of ancient Nineveh. And they know with certainty because of a lot of different things, including the scriptures, that this is the site of ancient Nineveh. And there's actually up until 2014, when this was bombed by ISIS, you could go visit a mosque there that was called Al-Nabi Yunus. And this is what it means. It, it's named after Jonah, the prophet Jonah in Arabic. And this was built over an ancient church that supposedly held the bones. And so this is right there in ancient, in ancient Nineveh. And here's a rendering after they dug this all up and discovered all these palaces and all these structures of what they think at its height the city of Nineveh may have looked like. This was called the Palace Without Rival. It was incredible. So this is a very prestigious city. And Jonah takes off to walk to it. Now, it goes on in verse 3 to say this. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. So it's a huge city. Literally in the Hebrew, it says it's a great city to God. It's a very prestigious city to God. It's important to God, even if it wasn't to Jonah, which we'll see in a minute. And, and at the heart of what a lot of scholars think this means when it says three days to go through it is it would take Jonah three days to go through the public squares declaring the message of God through the city. And so it says Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's a short sermon, isn't it? Eight, eight words. Some of you are like, that would be nice. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not that preacher. <laughs> Five words in Hebrew. 
And literally when it says overthrow, and here, here's the interesting part of this message that God gives Jonah that he proclaims all over the city. When it says overthrow, and this is the Hebrew word hapak, and it literally means to turn over, and it can have two different meanings or two different connotations. One of them is destroyed. 40 more days and Nineveh will be destroyed. But the other one could mean turned around. And see, so even in the message that God gives, there's this idea. There's two outcomes potentially. 40 more days and this city will either be destroyed, overrun completely, or it will be turned over. And perhaps the people will repent and turn back to God. To the heart of what God is saying, hey, if you don't repent and turn away from your violent, wicked ways, you're going to be destroyed. But there's hope. There's hope. See, this city is very violent. Here's what you need to know about this city. They are a culture that glorified and took pride in violence. They, they were one of the worst enemies of ancient Israel. In fact, that whole area of the Middle East because they would go in and they would wipe out whole cities and they would just massacre people and innocent people. They would do awful things to, barbaric things to. And then those that survived, they'd, they'd lead them off in great strings of slaves to, to go you know, build their palaces in other places. They'd, they'd completely upend a civilization and bring it over here to completely mess up the whole dynamic so they couldn't fight back against the Assyrian Empire. So they weren't just violent, they took pride in, in their violence. In fact, this is one of the things they discovered as they began to dig up these ancient cities. These kings were so violent and wicked. They actually had a world record. Um, they were Guinness world record holders. Um, it's in the book, you could look it up, probably not. But They had a world record because they in Nineveh had perfected the art of skinning people alive and keeping them alive the longest. Now, I won't show you that picture, but I'll show you this relief that they found on one of the walls of people impaled and left to be exhibited, these people they conquered. And so they were known for this kind of brutality and all sorts of other brutality. We won't go into it all. It's a little R-rated. They were known for that. And not only did they just do that and sort of like sweep it to the side, they took pride in it. When they dug up their palace walls, this was on display. All these places that they conquered and they made slaves and they impaled and they skinned and all this crazy stuff, right? They were violent. And God says, the stench of the violence of this culture and the immorality and the idolatry has risen up to me. And, and you guys are goners. <laughs> But there's hope. But even while Jonah's preaching, here's what we're going to discover. Jonah is hoping for the first meaning. All right, word, destruction or turn around. Destruction, destruction. Come on. Come on, God, destroy them. That's what they deserve. That's what they need, right? Now, here's the response. So Jonah only gets, remember this. Jonah is one day's journey into a journey of three days preaching through the city. He's got one day under his belt going around and proclaiming this prophetic word that judgment is coming, right? And it's kind of amazing they, they, they don't actually turn him into the next contestant on their game show for skinning. 
And I made up some lousy one just off the fly last night, like I, the skin is right or something. And everybody's like, ah. But then people are texting me good names last night. They were thinking of better illustrations for me. Minute to skin it. <laughs> Thought that was pretty good. Peel or no peel. Yeah. <laughs> so Jonah's expecting they're going to make him the next game show contestant as he's going through preaching this like one word. And, and you get the connotation from the text. He's not like trying really hard. He's preaching the message God gave him, but not exactly, you know, preaching it. He's just delivering the exact message. He's not embellishing it, right? It's a little half-hearted, but he's barely into day one. And this would be shocking to the original readers because here's what happens. Here's their response. Verse five says, the Ninevites believed God. What? They believed God. They heard the word of Jonah and they believed this is the message of God. Here's how they responded. This is the, the normal people of the town. They declared a fast, all of them from the greatest to the least and put on sackcloth. So they fast. That's a sign of humbling themselves before God, calling out to God, crying out to God. And they put on sackcloth, like rough animal, um, woven animal uh, clothing, blankets, essentially. That was a sign of, of mourning. And they get down. And, and so you've heard of that sackcloth and ashes, right? It's all throughout the scriptures. So they do this. They, they actually repent. They mourn for their sin. They turn to God in mass. We're going to see they turn to the one true God, not even their idols, to the true God. And it says this, when the, king, when the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne. Check out his response. This is the richest, most powerful, important person in the world at this time in history of the most violent and prideful empire. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne. So this is interesting because this parallels. There's a lot. This book is kind of written like comedic satire, but we'll see it's a, actually a tragic satire in a sense. It's written. Uh, so at the very beginning of the book, Jonah rose. And what did he do? He ran away from God. So here we see the king rise. And what does he do? He humbles himself. He turns to God. He rose from his throne. He took off his royal robes. He covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. The most powerful person in the world humbles himself before the one true God. This is the path that Jonah took, the path that the king took. And the original readers of this book would be going, what? No way. And it gets worse. Check this out. Verse 7. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. That's kind of funny to me. Because I know some of you... Uh, I don't get it. I'm not judging you, but some of you like do the sweater thing for your animals, like your cats, your dogs. All right, maybe I'm judging just a little, just a little. Because I'm wondering, do they really like it? I don't think, I don't know. Maybe they do. Maybe yours too. But this is funny. Like, he's like, there's this urgency. He's like, everyone repent. 
Don't even, don't feed your animals. Can you imagine the noise of them crying out, bellowing out, right? And then he's like, even cover the animals with sackcloth. Knit some sweaters for your cows and put them on there and make them sure they're rough so they're kind of miserable. See, this is, a sad, this is the comedy in the midst of this. <laughs> and here's what he said. And let everyone call urgently on God. People, animals, our whole culture, turn to God. Call on the name of God. Let them what? Not just say they're sorry. Everybody knows, and everybody, if you've had kids or if you are a kid, you know there's times where you're just like, sorry, to get out of something. Everybody's sorry when you get caught, aren't you? And have to pay a price. But he said, don't just say sorry. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. This is genuine repentance. This is genuine turning to God. And, and what is so striking about this is his radical earnestness. Not just the people, even the animals. After just one day of half-hearted preaching by the prophet Jonah, the whole city repents in mass. How did that happen? These were very wicked people known for their violence. Now they're calling out not to their idols, but to Ha-Elohim, the true God. How shocking. How unexpected. This people that is, worships themselves and their pride and their, their strength and their arrogance. And as historians have looked at this, here's an interesting thing. They found that perhaps God had been preparing them for Jonah's arrival. For the past several years, there were three mountain tribes during this time that had combined and were within about 100 miles of Nineveh by the time Jonah showed up. They were concerned they were going to come down and wipe them out. There were also two plagues within five years, as well as a full solar eclipse during this time. So they kind of had their like spidey senses up going, what's going on here? Also, maybe, maybe it didn't look hurt that like, Jonah looked like a post-apocalyptic zombie kind of prophet. Now, we don't know that. Like, maybe God completely protected him in the belly of the whale. Or maybe he came out, like, acid-washed with his eyebrows. Like, you know, the acid, like, took the skin off his eyebrows. God's like, all right, we're going to prepare you kids. You're, you're gonna... And he goes rolling in, and they're like, whoa. We don't really know. But what we do know is they turn to God wholesale in genuine repentance. So the king concludes his decree like this in verse 9. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. See, Jonah knew the heart and the character of the one true God. They didn't. But even, even because of that, they have this like sense of calling out to God of maybe he will have compassion on us. In their despair, they cried out to the Lord. Again, this matches what does Jonah do? In his despair, he cries out to the Lord. And the Lord sees him and gives him a second chance. In their despair, they call out to the Lord. And the Lord sees them. And here's what happens. Verse 10. When God saw what they did, and how they turned from their evil ways. Not just said they're sorry, but they turned from their evil ways. They, they repented of the direction they were headed in. 
he relented, or literally in the Hebrew, the idea is he had compassion. He felt sorrow for them. He had compassion on them, mercy, and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. God saw and he, he had mercy. He had compassion. He had grace, favor on them. In fact, Jesus, Jesus held up the people of Nineveh. When, when his generation was rejecting him, the religious leaders of his generation, he, he held up the people of Nineveh as an example. And he says, actually, the people of Nineveh are, are better off and more righteous than you guys. Because when they, the, the word of God came to them, they repented. They turned around. Your religious hard hearts. Remember, these are the Pharisees. These are the guys that are the best at the best of being good. I mean, they had all their ducks in a row. They had everything lined up, right? They spent more, more time in church than you ever dreamed of. And he said, yeah, you're missing the heart of God. You're missing the very work of God in your midst. You're not responding to what God is doing. In fact, for the last 1,800 years, they would read this portion of the book of Jonah in synagogues all over the world on the day of Yom Kippur, which is the day of repentance. Because this is such an amazing example of an unexpected people turning to God in genuine repentance. So, it's beautiful. If, if this story just ended here, it would be the perfect church story, wouldn't it? Jonah runs, God gives him a second chance, has grace. He does good, he goes, he preaches. The people repent, they get a second chance. Everybody goes home, we live happily ever after. But that's not how the book ends. See, it would be a good church story for good church folk who've checked off the right boxes and think they've got it dialed in. And we go home feeling better about ourselves. But here's how this book ends. It says this in chapter 4. And what's interesting, uh, some of you, you may never heard this because it wasn't in the VeggieTales version. They stopped before ch chapter 4. <laughs> Who knows what I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah, a few of you, you, you watch VeggieTales. All right. Chapter 4, Jonah is sulking. We actually discover the main reason Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh wasn't just because he was afraid of, you know, being skinned. He was, uh, he was afraid of exactly what happened right here and what God would do for them. Why? Because Jonah knew God's character. This is also where it can start to get really uncomfortable for those of us good church folk. Verse 1. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I don't like these people. I didn't want to come here and preach to them because this is what I expected. I knew it all along. See, he was having a hard time accepting Micah chapter 7, which says, you do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. He didn't exactly like that part of the story. That's great when it comes to me and my second chance and my sin being forgiven and, and me being restored. But these people over here, they're the enemy. They're evil. They're violent. God shouldn't have mercy on them. God's heart shouldn't be toward them. 
He goes on, he says this, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Wow. Jonah knew that. But it's interesting, he didn't, uh, we don't see any evidence he added that to his little five-word sermon. He knew that, yet they repented anyway. See, and here's the thing. If you're just checking out God, church, and the Bible, and you kind of have in your head this big idea of there's an Old Testament God who was sort of grumpy and angry all the time, and a New Testament God who's sort of like a jovial grandpa. No. Our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His heart has always been mercy and compassion. We just didn't understand it that well until Jesus came and revealed the heart of the Father to us. Gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Ezekiel says, the Lord says this, I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. That there's a second chance available. That God wants people to turn to him. See, the, the heart of this message is, is that God in all times and all places desires that all people in all creation be reconciled to him. As we see in Colossians. That was the purpose of Jesus. Now Jonah goes on to throw a prophetic temp temper tantrum. <laughs> Verse 3. Now, Lord, take away my life. For it is better for me to die than to live. He storms off. Now, before we judge Jonah too harshly, isn't there that thing in us that sometimes feels it's very wrong when God lets someone else off the hook? It somehow feels like we're glad for God's grace for us, but we're pretty good church folk anyway kind of got it dialed in, but those people over there, those people in the culture that dress that way or look that way or promote these kinds of things, kind of just want God to punish them. If you ever doubt that you're a sinful person, um, ask yourself the question, who would you love to see, see fail? Have you ever had that moment, perhaps, where there was someone that you've always maybe had the competition or a rivalry with, or if you're really honest, you're just jealous of, right? Maybe back in high school. And they hit a bump in the road. And that little thing that rises up in your heart and feels good, that's icky. See, what God is dealing with in this chapter is our hearts. Our hearts that love to embrace his forgiveness and his compassion towards us, but oftentimes fail to extend that towards others. I've noticed that when Jesus says, pray for your enemies, at least personally, maybe not you, um, that's probably one of the ones that I kind of ignore the most. Maybe you do too. See, here's where surrender takes on new ramifications for us. 
Jonah's surrender to God's directional will for his life, his moral life. I bet Jonah the prophet has it pretty much dialed in, right? Now, he's not perfect, obviously. And he's thankful for God's forgiveness. We see the last, the psalm of thanksgiving. But instead of thanking God, God, you're so good. You had mercy on me. You gave me a second chance. I'm praising you. And writing another song, God, thank you. These wicked people repented. They turned to you. Woo! We're going to be brothers and sisters forever in heaven. <laughs> it is so wrong to him. See, Jonah was surrendered to God's will for his life on a moral level, but he became very judgmental toward the people he didn't like. And when people surrender to God's moral will, but not his global purposes, not his heart for the world and those around us, our tendency as Christians is to become hypocritical and judgmental. Where it becomes more about judging the behavior of other people than inviting them to turn toward Jesus, to turn, to repent. That's part of the message, isn't it? Truth with love to turn toward Jesus and receive his grace and forgiveness and discover what life is really about. And what, what ends up happening when, our, when we get really good at doing good things, like serving, giving, those are good things. Remember Jesus to the Pharisees, what did he, what did he confront them on? He says, yeah, you got some things dialed in. I mean, you tied the little like garden herbs. <laughs> You're really precise. He doesn't rebuke them for that. He says, that's good. You should, keep, you should keep doing that. But you're neglecting the bigger things of the law, mercy and compassion. It's great that, that you're reading through the Bible. In fact, we challenged you to do that just a few weeks ago. I hope some of you are, are, are making some good progress. It's great that you're in a group, that you're being discipled. That's great. But if it doesn't translate into your life being more about what God is doing around you in this world, it becomes all about you. And we become people who, instead of drawing people into his kingdom, toward Jesus, toward his grace, actually drive them away. That's the heart of this message of this book. And so God tries to get his attention. And it says this, the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Really, bro? Is it right? And there's two connotations. Is it doing any good? Number one, you're not in control. Have you noticed that about your life? We have very little control over the actions of those people out there, do we? Is it right for you to be angry? Is it doing any good? In fact, in the, in the New Testament, that's what you see about anger. Man's anger doesn't accomplish much, does it? Most of the time, all it does is tear things down. And then the second part of that is, dude, do you remember the second chance you just got? See, what we tend to do if we're good church people is we minimize our own stuff. We judge ourselves based on our own intentions rather than our own actions. Have you noticed that? We know what we're thinking and we know what we wish we did, so we give ourselves the credit of what we wish we did. It's just a thing that all people do. We judge ourselves because we have good intentions. And we judge others based on what they do. The heart and the message of the gospel is all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the longer you're a good church person, the easier it is to forget that. By grace, you have been saved 
through faith, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, lest anyone should boast. You're not doing it. You're not tipping the scales in your favor. That's not the gospel. The gospel is while we were all sinners, Christ died for us. The gospel is I'm just a beggar showing another beggar the way to go find the bread because I found it. I was lost and now I'm found blind, but now I see. And, and the heart of that is so that I can help someone else who doesn't see, see. That's the gospel. That's what he doesn't get here. Is it right for you to be hangry? See, God wants the dialogue, but Jonah's not having any of it. It says this, Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city where he'd made himself a shelter, a sukkah. This is interesting too. This is what they would make during the Feast of Booths. Apparently he wasn't a very good builder. We'll see in a minute because it had big cracks in the top. So he got hot. He sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. He's just sitting there. He's all like mad and angry, grumpy. He's going to wait it out. 40 days. <laughs> Says this, then God provided. And I love it. The same word provided. Remember God provides a storm. God provides a, a whale, a fish, great fish. Now God's going to provide for him. But check this out. God, he's angry. He doesn't want to dialogue with God about his heart. God wants to dialogue about his heart. He's like, nope, not having any of it. And so God's going to bring him to a place of comfort and then right back to anger to get him to get to his heart. Check this out. Then the Lord provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort and Jonah was very happy about the plant. He has it made in the shade. Now he's comfortable and he can sit back and wait for God to smite them. Because I got it made. <laughs> he's, okay, here's the heart of this. Jonah becomes fixated on the trivial, on his comfort. Because here's what happens. The next day, God provided a worm. <laughs> which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, and I think he mutters this to himself, it would be better for me to die than to live. And now he's ready to dialogue a little. But God said to Jonah, is it right? Again, he asked him the question, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? All right, let's talk about this. So, okay, uh, you're angry about the plant. You had it made in the shade. Now you don't. You're not comfortable anymore. I took away the comfort. Is it right for you to be angry about that? It is, he said, and I'm so angry. I wish I were dead. See, he's totally fixated on the trivial, isn't he? What is he fixated on? His comfort. He's mad because God had compassion. Now he's really mad because God took the comfort away. And he's sitting there baking in the sun. And he's uncomfortable and he's hot and sweaty. And he could still sniff some fish gut smell. See, Jonah wanted to be in control. And God just painted a picture for him. Guess what? You're not even in control of this one little plant. It grew up. We provided you some nice comfort, and now it's gone, right? Can you control that? No. Stop trying to be God. 
Stop trying to think you're God that you know better than God. It says, but the Lord says, you have been concerned. You've had pity, literally, or compassion about this gourd. <laughs> Though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. It just came and went. And yet you're all wrapped up in it. This is a metaphor for so many of the things that we are so fixated on, that we get so spun up on in life, that if we're honest, it comes, it goes. It doesn't have that much significance in, in the eternal scope of things. It's a gourd, bro. It's not that important. Then he goes on. Here's the punchline. And should I not have concern, compassion for the great city, Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people, people made in the image of God. And yes, yes, they're sinful and they're wicked, but they're people I made. You didn't make the gourd. You're all spun out about it. I made these people. I love these people. I have a heart for these people. And he says, who cannot tell their right hand from their left. And here's, the, here, here's really the heart behind this expression is this. Not, not just they're clueless, but the point is they don't know the right way, and yet they're still responsible for it. See, this is the truth of the condition of humanity. They don't know the way toward the Savior, and yet they're responsible for the sin in their lives. That there is a day coming when Jesus will return to judge the quick and the dead, the living and the dead. That's part of the Apostles' Creed, right? And yet there's so many people out there that don't have a clue of how to find grace in Jesus, how to turn to Jesus. And then God ends it. Shouldn't I be concerned for this great city, more than 120,000 people who don't have a clue? And also, many animals. It's for you cat people. <laughs> Mic drop. In the book. Not crazy? We're left with the question. It ends strangely. But it's more than a question, isn't it? It's an indictment on good church folk who are concerned and wrapped up in the wrong stuff. See, this is a really, really good thing to pay attention to, especially in an election year where it can tend to get really heated when we can tend to focus in. And I'm, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying to, you know, work for your your, your candidate and, and be involved in the issues. I'm not saying that, but what I'm saying is when it comes to the tone of how you interact in society and with those around you, are you more spun up and fixed out on the temporal or on the eternal? Do you actually, one of the most commands, also, if I could be honest, that I struggle with probably the most is praying for kings and all those in authority. I tend to ignore that one a lot. Because I don't really like all that many people that are in authority, if I'm real honest. This is part of the heart of God. What is your heart towards the culture around? 
There's probably at least 50% or more in the, in the country that believe quite a bit different about some things than you do. What does it come to you? When you're, is your heart towards compassion? Is your heart towards them meeting the Savior? You know the ultimate answer to, to the state of society is when the gospel intersects with hearts and lives and lives are transformed. Do you know that is the thing that transformed Scandinavia, the whole of the West. When the gospel came forward, they abandoned pagan idols and awful practices, which oftentimes oppressed women and children. And it brought freedom and prosperity to humanity, actually. People who embrace the truth that there is a God and he's a God actually of mercy and grace and compassion. And in this, we're reminded God's message to Jonah, hey, I am concerned about this generation of people and I know that you're, they're your enemies. What are you concerned about? What are you concerned about? Which should lead us to ask a, a kind of difficult question. And that's this, do the things that concern God truly concern me? Do the things that concern God truly concern me? See, when Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When Jesus taught us to seek first his kingdom, here's what that means. That the orientation of my life should be first about people coming into the kingdom of God and living life and experiencing grace and forgiveness. And yes, repenting truth and love and turning from their sin. But how I lead and, and how I do that makes a huge difference in the tone in which I do that with, right? We have a role that we encourage you consistently here um, to move into, and that's a, a life on mission. We want you to live your life as a life on mission. That means that I'm living my everyday life to share the good news of Jesus and further his kingdom. That is the orientation of my life. That is, at the, at the base level, what it's all about, and I'm thankful for the job God gave me because it pays the bills and the business. I'm thankful for the places of influence and the good I can do in the community. Thankful for all of that. But all of that lives under this umbrella of the primary purpose about my life being for his kingdom and to share the gospel with others. We have a couple questions that go along with that. Who are you praying for and what's the next step towards sharing the gospel with them? Are you, do you have people in your life, and not just people you like, but people maybe you struggle to like, that you're praying for and looking for opportunities to share the gospel with them? And the other one is, how are you leveraging your time, your abilities, and your resources for the kingdom of God? Are you using the stuff he's given you? Your time, that's your biggest resource. Your stuff for his kingdom, or is it all about you and, and your little kingdom? What does your prayer life show about your priorities? What does your calendar and, and, and your debit card statement say about your priorities? Does your time, your skill set, your money intersect with God's greater purposes in the world? Good questions to ask, right? And here's what I know. In, in, in our church, we have people who are dialed in, lots of you are dialed in on this. You, you are living your life as a life on mission. Is there an area where God wants you to say, hey, bring this area in and live it a little more on mission for me? It's a good question for all of us. Is there an area where we're seeking first his kingdom 
and his righteousness, where, where that needs to come a little more into your life, where it needs to become a little bit more about reaching those in your life, sharing the gospel, actually having the courage to speak out and bring Jesus into the conversation, actually praying for people, rather than just being a good church person, right? For some of you, you have been content to basically live on the sidelines. Oh, you're a good church person. You try to live a good life. You get your kids here. You're raising a good family. All that's good. Don't hear me wrong. That's a wonderful thing. But the heart and the orientation of your life is not about his kingdom. It's not about his purposes. In fact, oftentimes you find your heart being very judge, more judgmental towards those around than having a heart to reach them for Jesus. This is an invitation and an opportunity for you to ask yourself, God, would you realign my heart to your purposes? Do the things that concern God truly concern me? Here's how we're going to close. I've got some people in the room that are going to pass out a really expensive, fancy church illustration, okay? It's a sticky note. You guys can go for it, wherever you are in the room. Let's get these things passed out real quick. Then we're going to pass some little uh, stacks of post-it notes down the aisle. Everybody take a post-it note, okay? And here's what I'd like you to do with that post-it note. Number one, I'd like you to write that question that we just had up there. Write that question on the top of it. And just think about it this week, okay? But number two, here's what I want you to do, because I think this is where the rubber meets the road. I'm asking you to write two names on that post-it note. One name is somebody in your life that it's easy to pray for. Maybe you, you love, it's, it's a child, you love them to death, but they've completely ran away from God, and your heart is crying out for them. Someone it's easy to pray for. A coworker, you love that coworker, they're awesome, they just don't know Jesus yet. Somebody it's easy to pray for. Number two, I want you to put the second name on there of someone it's really hard to pray for. Maybe that's a political candidate. But hopefully it's someone, I know a lot of you have someone closer to you, closer to you, that you just struggle. Maybe there's a rivalry. Maybe they, they, they just did that thing three years ago and you have such a hard time. Would you write their name on there and would you pray for them that God's mercy and his grace would intersect their lives, that they would turn to God and find the true way that life was meant to be lived and actually experience his blessing? Because let me just ask you, can you imagine how if God actually, which he says in the word, the prayers of righteous people are powerful and effective. If you prayed for that person and God actually encountered their life and changed their life, can you imagine how powerful that could be? Could you imagine the good that that could accomplish in the world? That's the heart of the gospel going forward to people. Would you do that this week? Let me pray for you. Father, thank you. Thank you for this amazing book, the book of Jonah, that you preserved for us for all these years. And Lord, I pray you would give us the ability to have your heart for this world around us. That Lord, we would reach out to those around in mercy and compassion. We would truly be a, a people whose life is lived on mission for you. Pray for that person who's struggling to love someone right now that you would give them the grace to love that person, 
to pray for that person. And maybe even when the time is right, share Jesus with them. We pray these things in your name. Amen.